Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About History Beneath the Skin. The past is another country, so they say. There the people do things differently. But though the ways of other times are not ours, we still tend to assume that we have things in common with those who lived before us, and one of those things is our bodies. However differently they may have dressed or acted or thought, we tend to say, surely beneath the skin they were just as we are. Fashions, even worldviews, may belong to the shifting terrain of history, but the substance of the body belongs to nature and therefore to natural science. This is the view that historian Barbara Duden challenges in a book just published in English called The Woman Beneath the Skin. First published in Germany in 1987, the book examines the records of an early 18th century German physician called Johannes Storch, who kept extensive case notes on his encounters with ailing women in the provincial court city of Eisenach, the city where 200 years earlier Martin Luther completed his German translation of the Bible. In these case notes, Duden discovered the traces of a body very different than the one we think we know today, a body in which substances we would not recognize find pathways we would regard as anatomically impossible, a body dominated by humors in which blood ebbs and flows rather than circulates. Most contemporary historians encountering this alien body reinterpret it from the superior standpoint of biomedical science, transforming what people thought they experienced into what science now permits us to know they really experienced. Barbara Duden takes a different and more radical tack. She takes the women of the early 18th century at their word and uses their experience as the basis for a critique of modern categories. Barbara Duden teaches history and conducts research at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Essen, West Germany. Her second book, Woman's Body as Public Space, has just appeared in Germany and is currently being translated. Over the last few years, David Cayley has followed Barbara Duden's work closely and recorded several conversations with her. Tonight, on Ideas, he presents a distillation of those conversations. David Cayley. On May 17, 1722, in the town of Eisenach, a young girl went for an hour-long walk with her sweetheart, danced at a village dance, and drank some pear wine. When she returned home, she complained of a headache and retired early. The next morning, the doctor had to be summoned. He found the girl, in his own words, struck by a fit of senselessness. She could not swallow medicines, so the doctor applied a blister-inducing plaster to her calf. His efforts were in vain, and two days later the girl died. The doctor was Johannes Storch, permitted by decree of the local duke to act as a town medicus in Eisenach. He kept detailed accounts of his cases, and towards the end of his life published seven large volumes entitled Diseases of Women. In these notes, he reflects on the case of this young girl and pieces the circumstances together in this way. The girl's monthly period, he concludes, had risen into her head. There the blood had been agitated by her amorous feelings, and the dancing and the pear wine had intensified this turbulence. He regrets that he did not override the girl's parents' wish that she not be bled at the feet, as he had recommended, since this bleeding might have relieved the intolerable inner pressure 
which led to her death. The case is strange to modern ears, but no stranger than many of the other cases which Barbara Duden quotes from Storch's seven volumes. A woman who feels that her husband has handled her too roughly during sexual intercourse complains about a wind in her uterus and then reports the next day that the wind has all gone out through her ears. A country chambermaid tells the doctor that when her period doesn't arrive, the blocked flow finds a way out of her body through bloody spitting. Other women report nosebleeds or bleeding from old wounds when they experience their menstrual periods as blocked. Breast milk also finds unexpected pathways. A young girl has a plaster placed on her swollen breasts, whereupon, Storch reports, the menzies broke out, which in color, smell, and taste resembled milk. On another occasion, he makes an incision for bleeding, through which, instead, pure milk flows. In Eisenach, these events are not curiosities, but expressions of a very different common sense than we know today. The bodies of the women of Eisenach cannot be isolated from their surroundings in the way that modern bodies can. These are bodies whose interiors cannot be precisely visualized and are therefore imagined either by the way this interior is experienced or by analogy with the visible world. Nor can this body be separated from the words in which it is spoken. No distinction can be drawn between the anatomical heart which pumps blood and the metaphorical heart which leaps and trembles, soars and swoons. Barbara Duden belongs to a small number of contemporary historians who want to take this pre-modern body seriously. Instead of dismissing the cases she finds in Storch's pages as fantastic misconceptions or failed gropings towards real scientific knowledge, she tries to set aside her own prejudices and tune her ear to the voices of the women of Eisenach. In this respect, she finds Dr. Storch an invaluable resource because his case notes are often virtually verbatim transcriptions of what the women said to him. I first met Barbara Duden in 1988 when she was teaching at the Pennsylvania State University. There, along with Wolfgang Sachs, Ivan Illich, and other friends, she took part in a group which was attempting what they called an archaeology of modern certainties, an effort to unsettle contemporary prejudices by unearthing their roots. Duden's contribution was a critique of the modern body as anatomized, defined, diagnosed, and manipulated by biomedical science. Her way of exposing this taken-for-granted reality was to contrast it with the very different forms of embodiment she found among women in the past. Duden's work in body history grew out of her involvement in the feminist movement in Germany, where she began doing women's history in the mid-70s. The conversation which makes up tonight's program begins at the point at which she realized that history needn't stop at the skin. Gradually it dawned on me that the kind of history that we did was just not deep enough or was not radical enough because usually the kind of history that is being done leaves the body out. So when we did history of childbirth in the, in the late 18th century, then usually we would do a history in which we would ask, now what is the history of the change of the birth attendance, history of midwifery, for instance, that we would do that, or, or the professionalization of midwifery, 
or say different practices that were being involved, but we never asked if the experience itself, yeah, that is, that you can ask, but what is this body of these women that does something? Yeah, and so I, I realized that in the effort to do women's history, uh, yeah, the, the very physicality would be a subject to ask, to inquire about. That I realized that even when we did women's history, that somehow the, the body seemed to be something as given or as natural. Yeah, that we thought, I mean, of course, always blood circulates, the uterus is pregnant, uh, there are always ovaries, there is a fertilized egg, uh, a pregnancy is something that can be described as cell division and so on. And, and of course, that's since antiquity, and so that's a realm that belongs uh, to the natural sciences or to biomedical sciences and not to the historian. And suddenly it dawned on me, but listen, what happens if I really take seriously an experience of one's own self in a society, in, a, in, in the Western society prior to the 19th century, in which there aren't just these defining agencies, science and medicine, that describe what I am inside and thus accordingly try to feel. Yeah. No? So that I uh, moved into, into taking the body serious as a subject for historical inquiry. So I moved into a history beneath the skin. <laughs> That's the title of this book. Yeah. Were there <laughs> others doing the same thing at the same no, time? No, no one really did this. No, no one did this when I started with it. Or oh, not in Germany, not in Germany. Yes, now a lot of people work on that. So but you had uh, no particular mentors or inspirers? No, no, no. Actually, actually uh, when I started doing it, some of my professors thought, but this is very strange indeed. I mean, either you do history of medical concepts, yeah, so you are within uh, a sub-discipline of the history of medicine, so you do history of obstetrics or history of gynecology, but uh, of course the body is naturally given. You, you cannot start inquiring uh, into that. Now, for me, it was very important that I worked with one particular source, this Johann Storch in Eisenach, and he was one of the very first physicians in the early 18th century who kept diaries in order to go back to their cases, and he wrote down what the women told him, and at a later point in his life, he organized all these notes, these protocols in high German into medical cases, and he published these cases to instruct uh, younger colleagues, uh, other physicians, about uh, women di women's diseases. Yeah. So yeah. did you get the idea when you encountered these books, or did you have the idea and then this gold mine? <laughs> no, I mean, imagine, I mean imagine, imagine, I had been reading uh, kind of sources like this before, but it never came to me that I could read them in a different voice. So usually you say you read an early 18th century case that starts, say, there comes a woman and she is uh, very pale and she's a sailor's wife and then he says she uh, 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 comes to see him on the 7th of April in uh, 1725 and, uh, and she complains about cramps in her stomach and that these cramps then move to her head and she feels something is stuck in her head and so on. So when you read something like this, you can read this, uh, that you ask yourself, um, now what does this woman really have? I mean, how can you how can you understand that? And you 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 can try to make a a modern diagnosis, a medical diagnosis about what this woman really has. So you might say uh, this is um, I say 
uh, chronic headache or something in con in, uh, uh, and that's completely disconnected from what she feels in her stomach or so and i and i realized that this wouldn't make any sense that i that i would never be un be able to understand wh wh what was going on and i and i and i tried to set out to understand what is what is actually going on in this practice what is this what is this interior that these women talk about what do they talk about what do they mean when they and basically it involved two ways of a of a mental or intellectual awareness one side of this awareness is that these women forced me to reflect on my embodied otherness yeah by reading these cases because i don't feel these kind of pains and w if i complain to a physician i complain in a completely different way so that is one way that i that i was forced continually to reflect on myself and on the other side to try to understand what is this what do they talk about? What is this biology in the true sense of a biology as a, a spoken revelation of what one feels in one's insides? Yeah. Can you give an example of a case or a class of cases from Storch, the kind of thing you were dealing with? To give some sense of yes. what this yes. lived body yes. was for the now women say, of Eisenach? Uh, yes, yes. I have a case an old woman who comes and um, she uh, she has had a, a fight with the man who was renting her a room and um, she, they got into some dispute and um, in the course of this quarrel with words this man takes her at, at the arm and kind of throws her out of the room or something so she's extremely angered yeah and very agitated and she runs to this physician and she wants to get rhubarb <laughs> she asked him for rhubarb. She knows exactly what she wants in order to get rid of this anger. I mean, a, a modern woman wouldn't do that. She knows, I mean, if she gets crazy or something, she goes to a psychiatrist. No? <laughs> I mean, she doesn't go to a, to a GP or only if it becomes chronic that, this, that she, she actually uh, feels some, what is called, then, uh, somatic reaction, and then she would go to a GP. So in order to understand this woman, I, I would ask myself, what is this body that she imagines being that an anger with this uh, rental lord actually something that enters her so much that she feels she has to do something to get rid of it so she takes rhubarb to get rid of that anger so somehow she imagines that in her body there is a material say connection or relation between anger and anger entering her and getting stuck somewhere in her innards and so that she not only symbolic but really wants to take rhubarb and shit properly yeah. <laughs> and get rid of it and then she feels better. This woman doesn't imagine her body as closed, first thing, it is not closed, but anger may enter her. Second, anger is not something that's say purely mental. Yeah, but it has a material effect on her. So this is an example of a very different way of thinking about the interior than uh, a modern woman would do. Is that yeah. does that make sense? So to you? experiences that for us would be purely metaphorical. Would be, yes. We would say, "I have a broken heart." Uh, are yes, yes, yes. Are not I mean, experienced yes. as yes. figures of speech, but as are lived. Yes, sense, are lived as, as, are, in as, the body. Yes, in the uh, are actually lived in the body. Do hearts yes. break, in fact? Oh, in yes. I think so. Yes, yes, yes. And they sink and they rise and they they uh, have uh, contortions. And if you have too much, say, 
anger that gets stuck and that kind of the heart starts eating it and so all this they they think that there's too much blood and the blood kind of coagulates and gets stuck around uh, around one's heart and then it might get very heavy and it weighs down or something. so it's very clear that all the, the the words that these women would be using do have a different say epistemological status these words have a different status as to the reality they would be speak they speak about a heart that can break and so when a woman says i have a broken heart she imagines herself inside something being broken I wrote a piece posing this question, how does it come that basically all the words that we can use about today about emotions that are being lodged in the interior, in the bodily interior, are only used metaphorically anymore and they don't have a material basis because uh, the emotions have been disembodied. We express them in words that have only a metaphorical ring and are in this sense not real anymore. But it's very clear that uh, here we have a, a pre-19th century body in which yeah, the experience of the flesh is expressed in words that carry this materiality with it. Yes. Do these women experience themselves as powerful in a way that, uh, physically, in a way that contemporary women don't? That's a very difficult question because I meet these voices of women who are long dead in a situation of pain and misery and discomfort. I think they are powerful in this sense, perhaps, that they find ways to make this bearable, to deal with it in a way that they decide themselves. Yeah? The ways a woman could go in pain yeah, are ways that she can decide on herself. So I studied the encounters between a physician and, and these women where the women choose to go to this physician, but before or after, they might as well go to other healers, to other women, to neighbors. They might dispute with their mother or with their sister. What is all this about, what they do? They, in fact, know actually very well in which direction um, a relief would be. And often what they, when they say they feel better, they feel well, it is very contrary to uh, ways in which I would think today I felt better. And I have to take that for serious. Yeah. Say, for instance, they very often ask for bleeding. And uh, in, a, in a biomedical uh, model of the body, bleeding, of course, takes strength from the body. It m doesn't make any sense um, to get rid of an, an excess of blood. And so when you bleed a person today, you say someone um, is bled in order to donate blood so they know they have to eat more because it's a weakening of the body and actually they should take care because they wouldn't feel so well. And uh, here in the early 18th century, these women copiously uh, get bled, I mean, uh, um, have taken blood. They want it themselves and then they say they feel much better, they feel lighter, they, f they feel more, more agile. So I have to take serious that one's very flesh allows for very different ways in which you feel better. So there is not one objective way to say now, now actually you are sick or now you are, yeah, but that well-being is part of the orientation of one's fleshly orientation in which you give meaning to what happens. How yeah. do they think of the doctor? Is he a particular authority for them? I think they use him. They know they know what they want from him, but in no way he's in a in a power situation that he has knowledge 
about a body that he treats and they are basically patients. He doesn't That's even just have the beginning of these ideas yet. No, no, no. They, they search for his services and they leave him when they think he can't help them anymore. Also, they, they change physicians. There is no medical system that is there and, and kind of monopolizes the definitions of the body as well as, say, the therapeutic procedures in which you get well. They all compete, all these physicians, in a way. They are, in a way, like a patron-client relationship in which the physician, actually, in a way, is, is more like a client who has to woo <laughs> the patient and see that he does that, what uh, these women want, or also his male uh, patients. Yeah. And that's also what other people found, that for the 18th century, the impetus to go there or there yeah, stays with the sick person. Yes, yes. There is not a professional corpus or institutions that do have the power to define what's going on. But it is the women or, or the lay public that knows. But in a way also then they share the same body of knowledge. I mean the physicians, the healers, the midwives, the mothers, the neighbors, everyone. I mean they are kind of steeped in the same culture, in, in the understanding of the body. The women who suffer, mm -hmm. do they suffer in a different way? than we would suffer? They don't believe there is a fix. <laughs> they don't believe that there is some fix you can do, yeah. which is probably true. I mean, there is no fix there in this culture. Meaning what? That, that suffering is always, to a degree, accidental and arbitrary for us? Is we don't think we should suffer because there should be a fix? I think we Whereas basically we can't suffer anymore. I mean, in almost any situation, we ask for a medical diagnosis and then uh, a fix. And in fact, say if you look at at pregnancy, uh, medicine offers much more has much more capacity for uh, diagnosing diseases that they cannot fix. But in, at the same time, they instill into the public that there is this capacity that they can mend everything. So in a way, they instill into the public an image of the body that is a mechanism that can be almost ultimately fixed. And so if your heart is broken, you get a new one. Or if you, And nothing of that is present in the 18th century, but really nothing. So you, I mean, you are born with this body and you try to get to terms with it. Yeah, I'm really impressed with this capacity of suffering that they have. Yes, yes. Well, in English, the word suffer itself has an interesting older sense. Yeah. And that people may still know from the King James Bible, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me and so on, that, that suffering is actually allowing, an allowing yes. of experience. Yes, in, it in is. In the a older part, English meaning of it. It is a part of being in the world that. Uh, as much as you have joy, so there is also this shadow side in which you suffer, and the, the two belong together, isn't it? Yeah. One thing that impressed me very much is that this physicality, this body that they talk about as being, yeah, in no way is mentally objectified. Yeah? So when a woman talks about a pain in the area of her heart, it is her pain, it is herself. What she talks about is, say, the story of her life, and there is no body as a physical body that could mentally be abstracted and be delivered to um, medical care. 
Yeah? I mean, I see, see the history of the body as a history in which gradually the lay public learns to perceive one's own flesh and blood as an objectifiable mechanism that almost has no self, and you can imagine it in the ways in which it is being described in medical textbooks, and you, it can be treated in these different ways, but somehow as if it is possible to make a, a distinction between what you are yourself as a self and then your organs. Yeah? I mean, in, 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 in no other way could it be possible that in this culture we can perceive actually of people who believe that they can have their heart taken out and take, have a new heart put in. Here, the heart has lost any meaning of what a heart meant. I mean, that is the locus of emotion and of self and of one's own history that you cannot take out. I mean, or you cannot get in someone else's because it has its own history in this other body. Yeah? So it, you, you have to have a, this history of a disembodying of a body that becomes an objectifiable assembly of organs and a physiological... Uh, um, Function, yeah. So for the woman you were talking about a moment ago, there is no body that she has. No, it is. Th these she women don't have a body. They are. So I am the sailor's wife uh, or the cobbler's wife or uh, this servant girl or this pregnant uh, unmarried wench or something. This is what she is. And, and what happens inside, that is she herself in her life story. So therefore in these cases uh, or in these encounters with the physician, the women tell all these hundreds of stories. So they cannot talk about an interior. They cannot talk about their heart as just an organ, but they tell all these stories, what happened to their heart in order to have it bettered. So all these stories are part of it. Otherwise, it cannot be grasped. You cannot talk about it in a different way. Yes. And today when, a, when someone comes to the physician and you have a broken heart because your lover have, has left you, that is something that the physician discards immediately because it's not part of, a, of an anamnesis, because the anamnesis is purely the anamnesis of an organ. Yeah? Mm. And, and here it's a life story. So therefore, this source is, is full of all these stories. Yeah? But did you find this embeddedness, this embodiedness, uh, frightening? to contemplate from a modern perspective as well as liberating? If you put yourself in that situation, do you, do you find it frightening too? I mean, I'm dealing here with a world that is lost, yeah? But at the same time, I learned from these women that I, <laughs> I stopped with my health insurance. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have a health insurance anymore because I think I, I won't go there and I stopped with these continual say uh, that in order that I know say my uterus is not having untoward growth I have to have all these pup tests and so, I don't do that anymore so for myself it had it of course yeah. it was important yes so it was I, not frightening you want this embodiedness back yes yes as much I, as you can have yes, it yes I really learned something about from these women about say trying to put myself back <laughs> into my own flesh yes yes really stopping to, that I learned to stop to perceive myself as Barbara Duden who has this body and if something's going wrong so uh, uh, I ask the physician and, and it also has in, in, in thinking back it has implications to how I deal with friends uh, or relatives when they are sick 
I mean, my father, my father died in very, um, I mean, really in a, 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 a medicide, a clinical death, and, uh, and that's many years ago, and uh, I tried to help him, and I was there. Uh, uh, for three weeks, and I allowed and actually encouraged the m medicine to do anything. And I mean, he went through all this torture before he died. And um, that was then because I believed uh, they could do something. I never understood, but this is an old man with 76 who might be dying. So how do I relate to him as this person that I love and respect, this old man, to create that space in which he might be able to die in a decent way, yeah? but he, he, I mean, he, he, he was basically slaughtered in the effort to keep him going for a little bit longer, and I would never do that again. I would never, I, I mean, I would take him out, or I would, would stay in the hospital and not have, not have them do the operations, but, but stay with him, yeah, because, because I see it in a different way. I would, I, I, I would see him as my dying father, but then I saw my father on the one side, but then I saw his body, and of course his body had to be treated according to the advice that was being given. Uh, and this I learned from these women, yes. The women of Eisenach gave Barbara Duden a place to stand, a place from which she could reinterpret her father's death, and a place from which she could view the modern body in a new light. By taking these women at their word, she raised the possibility, as she says in her book, that the thinkable actually becomes reality. With this thought, she follows philosophers of science like Gaston Bachelard, who argued that it is our imaginations which endow reality with form. I cannot and do not wish to clarify, Duden says in her book, whether the surgeon who recorded a periodic menstrual flow from a wound or the doctor who on several occasions saw a nun from Eichsfeld urinating through her mouth we're describing something real. But if Bachelard teaches me to take the imagination seriously as a source of material reality, she continues, I do not deny the possibility that the thinkable actually becomes reality. This suggests that the modern body has no different status than the body of Eisenach. It too becomes what we imagine it to be. The modern body, in other words, is not as we commonly assume, a discovery, but an invention. In his influential book, The Birth of the Clinic, published in France in 1963, Michel Foucault attributed this invention to the power of what he called the clinical or medical gaze. Toward the end of the 18th century, Duden says, paraphrasing Foucault, the modern body was created as the effect and the object of medical examination. The clinical and investigative gaze crystallized as body that which it perceived. This new clinical discourse had the power to repress older modes of perception and to create new realities. Following her work on Storch's records, Barbara Duden concentrated her attention on how medical and scientific definitions constitute this new object, the modern body. She focused particularly on technologies like ultrasound scanning, which allow the interior of the body to be visualized. And she used her historical research as a way of highlighting the novelty of the contemporary body. The encounter with women in the past is very helpful to understand something about the uniqueness of the modern situation that we have in the last 20 years. 
Yeah, because looking from an early 18th century perspective, taking that serious as one way of coping and one way of being pregnant allows to see something about the factitiousness of the modern situation, fictitiousness and factitiousness, factitiousness the word, yeah? Mm -hmm. Take the abortion issue, yeah? Since perhaps 10 years in the debate, there is a new figure, uh, and that is the fertilized egg, and then the fetus that play a role in the debate about uh, the possibility and the legitimacy of a woman's decision if she wants to continue with a pregnancy or not. And this entity, the fertilized egg and then the fetus, is certainly new because in the history of pregnancy, women were pregnant and at some point they were pregnant with child. After quickening in the second part of pregnancy, but there there was just no, f save also for, for a political or public discourse, the content of the womb was not nameable in this unborn named as a fetus to which there was imputed a personhood and there was imputed right and uh, also patienthood and so on and so on. So I wrote a piece on the on the history of the emergence of the public fetus to understand something about the novelty in which the, the debate is being couched. Yeah? Because we have to understand something about what are the technologies that make it possible that suddenly, say, a fertilized egg is something that my neighbor and the secretary in the program that I work with and uh, the, the committed feminists, they all dispute what to do with this and so they take it for real. It's something that is real, that that is being debated and of course no one has seen it. Well, they've seen a, <laughs> what? They've seen a picture. Yes, of course, they have seen pictures, yes, but they, but I'm interested in the way how did we come from a, from a fairly clear situation in which women were pregnant and in due course they gave birth to children. We have now a situation in which the, say, the uterine environment is a locus of public dispute in which there is this new being, the, the, the fertilized eggs that then becomes the fetus and that can mentally be disembedded from the interior, from the innards of a woman and becomes an agent in itself. Yeah. Of course, this is related to uh, techniques of visualization, to ultrasound, that in the last 10 years, almost, I mean, almost everyone knows now something about fetal development and stages and how big a fetus is today, and uh, I, I mean, in, in, in stages of pregnancy. And so suddenly what pregnancy meant has shifted. Yeah. But this is normally thought of as good. I mean, these are discoveries that have been made. No, these are openings uh, and and peeping into the interior of the womb that are made possible through through techniques of visualization, yeah. That then are peddled by the media, so everyone sees it somewhere. It's being shown in uh, in uh, newspapers and so on, and 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 that we we now can see what is inside of the womb is uh, created this new reality. That's right. Yes. But I'm asking, why is that not real once it's been seen? Because why shouldn't because we act as if that is now reality since we have 
indeed seen it. Be yeah, because there is a fundamental difference of what I feel or what a woman feels inside and what she knows, say, through her interior senses and, uh, and what you can see on a, a screen on the outside. And suddenly what you can see on a screen outside is more real than what you feel. Say, I have in the, uh, there, there is research being done on pregnant women in the 19th century and... Um, there's a long period in which women can say yes or no. They are not sure if they are pregnant and then uh, there's quickening and pregnancy is this is going through these stages of one's inside in which now at a certain point, uh, gradually, and then at a certain point a woman gains a certainty and then also socially she becomes a pregnant woman. So it is a history that is shaped through the central experience. And uh, if a woman doesn't want to be pregnant. She doesn't have to deal with, say, with, with the destruction of her life because there is no life in the uterus. She is pregnant herself and it has to become, or at a, at a point, it does not become. It is blood or it's something that she gets rid of. Yeah? So it is something that stays within the central experience of one's own body. And that's something very different than, say, a woman today, and that is the average, that uh, a woman who is pregnant today doesn't feel everything is all right if she has not seen it. So the technological mediation of facts about what is happening in the womb gives a different degree of uh, reality than actually that what is accessible to the senses. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? It does. Mm -hmm. I, I understand it, but I think the... Why it is, you think why I see it so negatively? This is your question. Or why I would say why I see it with a critical eye? Yes, because it is. Yeah, the question is, what does this tell us about what we can do in our flesh ourselves? Because it disempowers or incapacitates women to trust their own senses. Yeah, I mean, uh, say a woman that I know and who she was pregnant, um, a, a friend of mine, and she gets very worried if she doesn't have this continual professional. Uh, supervision and and then actually that she sees it's still there. So somehow it is as if women transform themselves into uterine environments that have to be monitored in order that everything goes right. Mm -hmm. So the machinery in a way invades the body and invades the senses so they cannot trust their own senses. I mean, Bill Arney did this beautiful study on, on this shift in which a new technology like ultrasound was uh, used in the 70s in very clear and precise uh, say, diagnostic indications in so-called risk pregnancies. And then it was very helpful. Yeah? But then there happened this shift so that a, te a technology that was a help in, in precise incidents becomes a necessity for, the, for any pregnancy. And in a way, no pregnancy then is doing well if you uh, do not have uh, this technological invasion and the, and the rectification of the interior ongoings uh, being seen on the screen. Yeah? And this tells that she herself cannot trust to that what she does in her inside. Yeah? But that she needs the technology and the professionals to continually tell her, yes, it's still okay, it's still okay. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And I think this very deeply disempowers women, very deeply. And it tears down a fundamental difference between, see, 
ongoings in a laboratory or, on, or processes that could also happen in an artificial uterine environment on a petri dish and what happens in a woman's body. And, and, and I think the, the um, destruction of this deep fundamental difference, what I am myself and what is a technological apparatus, this is very disconcerting to me. You look... <laughs> well, I'm, there's two yes. things that I'm interested in about this. Yes. One is how you can dispute that the knowledge gained through technology is real. And then the second question, equally interesting, is if one can dispute that, can one then get away from this pervasive imagery? Can one refuse it? It's a very important question to sort this out uh, very carefully. This, uh, for me, fundamental difference between a reality that is accessible to my senses, yeah, and a reality that is produced through technologies uh, that I even don't know how they work. Yeah? There are two very different ways of knowing, and I would say that for the second one, one cannot even say you can know it. Yeah, say the ultrasound picture. Yeah, gives the appearance when a, a woman sits in front of an, uh, a real-time ultrasound scanner that she sees the interior of her womb. That is an illusion, because what she sees is the electronic mapping of physically defined matter, matter as it is being defined in physics. She doesn't even see a surface, some surface, and she doesn't see a body. Yeah? But what she sees make that she thinks she can see this child in her interior. But in fact, she buys into the necessity of, say, having something visually represented that, um, in fact, she can grasp herself with her senses. So this is one incidence of yeah, this reversal in our culture in which Images and pictures seem to be more real than that what what you actually can grasp and feel and and sense and smell yeah I think at the same time that what the ultrasound does is when when a woman looks th that this is her baby, I mean this electronic recording of physical matter, yeah, she learns at the same time something about surveillance you must see it again and and actually that is something that uh, has been found out that women want again and again to see it in order to know it's still there. Yeah? It makes them dependent on this surveillance and it tells them something about the necessity to manage it. I think it's something absolutely different between how you imagine and feel your baby and and when you see it on the ultrasound. And, it, and I'm interested in the effect of this, say, the mass application of these images and then the self-ascription of a pregnant woman that this is her baby, yeah? because it is not. Yeah. Is there any way out in your yes, opinion? Yes, of course, you have to say no. I think women have to learn to say no to these procedures and they basically should trust their own senses, yes. I mean, if a friend of mine, uh, uh, and she, she's pregnant and, and she, she feels worried and she wants to go and dis with her doctor and how she feels and so I think there's n there's nothing bad about that but as a system yeah in in its mass application yeah I think it deeply undermines women's capacity to bear in the in the literal sense yes 
I'm deeply convinced that the only way out is saying no to this and arguing from one's own senses. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's not just that women uh, imagine mm -hmm. a baby after the ultrasound image when that has nothing to do with what they're living or sensing at that moment. It's, it's that we see the earth from the moon. It's that mm -hmm. we speak of ourselves as systems. It's that we have medical names for all the parts of our bodies and we speak in those terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, these, this objective language about ourselves is so, so much a part of everyday talk and it's so deeply internalized that, that mm -hmm. saying no is almost unimaginable. One can talk about perhaps restricting the use of certain particularly pernicious technologies. Mm -hmm. ultrasound scanning or whatever, but it seems to go to every part of our lives and not just to be an isolated problem. I mean, to imagine oneself mm -hmm. as living in an ecosystem, mm -hmm. as everyone now begins to do, is just the same, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, it's I mean, still taking scientific information and naturalizing mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and imagining that's what we live. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm I just mean, trying to get at yes, the fact that it's yes. so pervasive. Uh, the... Um, history of the transformation of pregnancy in the last 20 years might very well be used as a paradigm to what happens to the body in the, uh, say, in the age of professional expertise and management in, uh, in nutrition, in the health sciences. I think what happens to women is a paradigm to what happens, say, to our physicality in this culture anyway. In trying to understand how scientific facts are domesticated and sentimentalized, Barbara Duden came across the work of a microbiologist called Ludwig Fleck. Thirty years before Thomas Kuhn put the word paradigm into circulation, and other philosophers of science demonstrated that some conceptual lens is always necessary to turn the buzzing, blooming confusion around us into a coherent world, Fleck tried to puzzle out how something previously imperceptible becomes a scientific fact. He wrote up his results in a little book called The Creation and Development of a Scientific Fact. Through him, Duden was able to see the kind of training that is necessary before the imperceptible passes over into the taken for granted. The work of Fleck has been very important for me because he's that one person, this uh, Jewish microbiologist who in the, the mid-1930s, say, historized scientific facts in the sense that he asks, but how does it come that we take a fact as a fact? It has been produced at some time, but then, it, then suddenly it, is, it becomes a common consensus. So he did this for, syphilis, for, the, for the history of syphilis, but you can as well do, uh, apply uh, his insights into the fact of the incarnation of a, of a fertilized egg in a woman's innards, because you cannot feel it. No woman can feel a fertilized egg. It doesn't belong to the realm of that what is accessible to one's bodily senses. So I got very interested, say, in the migration of scientific facts. How do facts that are being produced in the laboratory and under the microscope, how do these insights uh, travel into the mind of every individual woman so that she ascribes to herself, say, 
something uh, as fictitious as the fertilized egg, that a woman who never sees it under the microscope, and if she would see the micro in the, into the microscope, she would just see some, some blob or something. I mean, she wouldn't be able to recognize it. You have to be trained to see it, that she believes herself, but this is what is going on in her interior. For Barbara Duden, a scientific fact is a fact only within its proper sphere, which is science. An obstetrician can sometimes learn what he needs to know from a sonogram. The ecosystem may be a useful concept for the ecologist. The problem for Duden comes when scientific facts invade everyday experience and the ecosystem becomes nature, or the fetus, a political actor. You can analyze this, this configuration as the, the, the merging of uh, two completely separate spheres because on the one side you have, a, you have um, what is being made visible through technology in the laboratory and on the other side you have a, an, say an ethical or moral discourse that never before dealt with invisible things. I mean, ethics traditionally dealt with persons, always always, and ethical disputes were about the behavior of persons. So you have a, a, a new situation in which, an, uh, say, an ethical discourse um, gives substance to invisible matter that is at stake in a laboratory. Yeah? And in, it's only in the public that these two merge, because in the laboratory they don't deal with lives, they deal with cells and cell divisions and tissue. So yeah. how do you view the field of bioethics, this whole field that has grown up to deal with I think that has problems that are perceived as a result of these invasive technologies? Yeah, that is this new and growing and flourishing branch uh, of medical science that gives the semblance of ethical questions to these new realities that I think have nothing to do with ethics. Tissue and cell division is not a substance in which there, there arise ethical questions. Yeah? So I think the, the, the main role of this bioethics is to give the semblance of, say, ethical procedures in a basically unethical context. It is a scientific and it's a technological context. Yeah, or it's an institutional or a management context, but it has nothing to do with ethics. So I think their main function is make, to make the general public believe that we are here dealing with issues that in a way resemble issues that have been discussed in ethics uh, historically. Because but this is not being seen. This is not being seen. This is not seen because of the power of science to create facts that are being taken for granted in the perception of almost everyone. The abortion issue basically deals with invisible stuff, invisible matter that is being being traded as having the same status than that's something that's as tangible as this cup or so, no? In opposing the sensual to the scientific, Barbara Duden is trying to reclaim the privacy and the power of women's experience. Women, she says, must draw the shade on what one of her German colleagues calls the glass womb. They must choose between the life which is ascribed to them as the uterine environment for the public fetus, and their own aliveness. I did some research on um, infanticide in the 19th century, court cases where women who had killed their newborns were being um, charged for murder. And so these women are there, and uh, you see a clash of two different ways of perceiving.
On the one side, there is, say, the new science of embryology, doctors who say, but this was a live birth, so you killed. And on the other side, there are uh, these country women, basically um, unmarried uh, girls, who say that I never was pregnant. That was something that never was. And it didn't breathe. And it wasn't real. Yeah? And all through these nine months, yeah, they, they tried to do everything to, say, create this other reality of the reality of their life stories, that this was not a real pregnancy. And I, I would take side with these women against science who can ascertain another reality. Now, of course, today this is much more difficult because today we have this open womb or this uterine environment in which the womb in the body becomes one instance that is almost likened to a Petri dish. So everywhere they happens the same. It's very important for women to understand something about the conditions and the axioms under which this fictitious reality of science or of scientific facts is being produced and to make a difference of, say, this reality and the reality that a woman feels herself. Yeah? I think that's very important. On Ideas, you've been listening to a conversation between historian Barbara Duden and Ideas writer David Cayley. Their conversation continues next Monday evening on Ideas. Technical production, Lawn Talk. Barbara Duden is the author of The Woman Beneath the Skin and Disembodying Women, Perspectives on Pregnancy and the Unborn, both published by Harvard University Press. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 or $13 for the series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, History Beneath the Skin, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.